I don't know yet. We'll figure it out. All right, if you want to make your way back to your seats, you can do so. If you want to grab a Bible that's on a seat next to you or one that you brought home with you, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, but be ready to look at Isaiah chapter 10 as well. Shouldn't be too hard. It's right next door to it. But Isaiah chapter 11, that's where we're going to camp out this morning for, as we continue our series on the vision of Isaiah for the restoration of God. And in particular, this morning we're going to be looking at hope. And how Isaiah's vision provides us with hope. As we prepare to be in God's word, to meditate on it, to reflect on it, to listen to what God wants to say to us, let us take a moment, let us pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you remember back from last week, you remember that the the prophecy of Isaiah occurs between the years 740 B.C. and 700 B.C. And largely the prophecies are about, they're about the two things really. They're about the judgment of God on the southern tribe of Israel, or the southern, southern nation of Israel, Judah, and, uh, and, and about God's restoration. And especially in the front half of the book, where we, are last, where, where we were last week and where we are going to be this week, it's about the judgment that's coming because of the evil that God's people have done. And so you've got Assyria off to sort of the north and east of the kingdom of Israel, and they're threatening to attack, Right? And in chapter 10, Isaiah hears God's anger at Assyria, which is a little bit of an odd thing because God is both prophesying or telling Isaiah, hey, this is what's going to happen. But simultaneously, as God is saying, Assyria is going to come down and attack and conquer, God is also angry at Assyria. And particularly, God is angry at Assyria because of its pride. If you want, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10 and look at verse 13. This is Isaiah prophesying, and he says, For he says, and the he there is the king of Assyria. For the king of Assyria says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. And so you can see that, The king of Assyria here is really flexing his muscles and saying, the reason I've conquered everyone, the reason my nation continues to grow, the reason we are feared is because I'm so great. Right? Now, if you've read the Bible even a little bit, you know that this kind of pride, this kind of hubris does not sit well with God. It boils God's anger. Right? And if you can look down at verse 15 of chapter 10, you see God respond to the pride of King of Assyria. And he says this, Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it, or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood. So God says, listen, King of Assyria, you're a mere tool in my hands. 
you're not the one who is doing this. You're not the one who's plundering the nations. You're not the one who's conquering them. I'm allowing this to happen. You're a tool in my hand as I bring judgment against the evil that my people have been doing. Right? Now, this isn't the end of it. So God is angry at Assyria and continues on. And then look what happens at the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 33. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Now, These last couple verses of chapter 10 are a little bit ambiguous in terms of who is Isaiah or God talking about, right? Commentators, academics, they go back and forth on who this is. On the one hand, it could be the Davidic dynasty, right? So David's descendants have messed things up. David was said, said to be, he's going to sit on the throne and your descendants will be there forever, right? And except David's descendants mess things up and the glory of Israel under the reign of King David is no more. It's been cut down. All that's left is a bunch of stumps. That's one interpretation of who this is that's being talked about. The other one is that it could be Assyria, right? That Assyria came in all proud. Look at us. We're the ones who have plundered the nations. We're the ones that have removed the boundaries. We're the ones that have absorbed everything. I am so smart. I am so strong. And then God steps in and says, no, 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 no. I'm about to level the proud. I will not allow you to oppress my people or other nations any longer. I'm going to cut you down. So that's another possibility. I don't think it matters all that much. I think what's important for us to hold to is the metaphor itself or the image because it is so powerful. The forests of Lebanon during these days were these vast cedar forests that just extended over and over. Like the, you got these rolling hills of Lebanon, like what we think of Middle Eastern rolling hills, right? And they're sandy, maybe a little bit grassy and rocky. Back then they were these huge groves of cedar forests. And they were heavily logged until the second century. And at that point, uh, the Roman emperor uh, Hadrian was extremely alarmed at the rate by which these forests were being logged. And so he actually put a stop to it and he made the forest of Lebanon an imperial preserve, right? But after a time, the logging recontinued, particularly under the Ottoman Empire, and then with the British and the Turks during uh, the World Wars, that they would log these cedars to rebuild up the, f- the railroads and build forts. And today, what's left are 12 small cedar groves. Oops, got to turn this on here. There we go. 12 small cedar groves are what's left of these massive forests that once covered the Lebanon landscape. So if you can Just begin to imagine. Imagine the hills like that, at one time covered with forests. But then you walk up on it and all you see are stumps. You see the the wreckage that's left if you've ever been to a logging site before, like it's just tree limbs and branches and stuff laying on the ground, but then you just see stumps everywhere. Uh, Or or maybe, maybe it's better for you, picture the Lorax, right? That scene in the Lorax that after the, whatever the thing is that they're making, what is it? I don't even remember. So anyways, they've got all the forests there, 
and all you've got is stumps. Where once there was this beautiful, diverse landscape, now destruction. This is the image that we end chapter 10 with. And then look what happens in 11. 11 chapter 1. A shoot will come up from the stump. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will, their young, young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So notice the very first thing about chapter 11. As we transition out of chapter 10 and God has laid waste either to the Assyrian army or to the Davidic dynasty, either one of those two things, we have this landscape that's just been covered with stumps. That's all that it's left, that's all that's left, stumps. And Isaiah looks out and he sees that vision, he sees the stumps, he sees the smoldering landscape of destruction, and then he notices on one of the stumps a shoot. Growing up out of one of the stumps is a small sign of life. Maybe, maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've had it in your yard where you cut down a tree or you cut back a bush all the way down and it looks like it's absolutely dead. It looks like there's no way that this thing is ever going to come back. And the winters come and it covers it with snow. And when the spring rolls around and the snow melts, little shoots begin to come off of that stump. Life appears where there was seemingly only death. And all of that happens because despite the fact that the tree or the bush has been cut all the way back, despite all the fact that all that remains is a stump, there's something still alive, right? The roots are still good. Israel has been conquered and everything around them has been laid to waste, but the roots are still good and a shoot will come up. It seems like everything has been destroyed, that there's no reason for hope. But once again, fruit will be born on the branches of Israel. I hope you're seeing how this preaches, right? Because when we think all has been lost, when we think our lives have been cut back to the very bare minimum, when we think that there is no possible way that something good could come from what we are experiencing, that all hope has been taken from us, when all we see in the landscape of our lives is stumps, God sees the possibility. God sees that the roots are still good. God sees that new growth will come up, that restoration is is something that waits 
for us. When we think that everything has been chopped down, God's promise is, I will make something new grow. When all we see is stump, God sees, no, 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 there's going to be a shoot coming out of that stump. And the hope that you and I have, that has been given to us by God, is restoration. Not all has been lost. And death and destruction do not get the last word. Because the prophet of God sees a stump. And coming up out of that stump is a shoot. But it's not just any shoot. It's a shoot of Jesse. Now, as soon as Isaiah brings up the name Jesse, the original hearers of the prophecy, their ears would have picked up. They would have sat up, their backs would have stayed straight in just a little bit. There would have been a little bit of hope for them because, because that name would hearken all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we are told that David is made king over Israel. And David is the king that Israel has been longing for. He is the good king. He has defeated the Philistines. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And now he's preparing to build the temple of the Lord. And as David prepares, fully prepares to build the temple of the Lord, the prophet Nathan comes to David with a word from God and says, Hey, God wants you to hear this. Uh, I know you want to do this, but you are not going to be the one who is going to build the temple of the Lord. Instead, one of your offspring will build the temple and one of your offspring will be the one to establish the kingdom of God forever. All right? And what we know happens after this is that Israel strays from God. Its kings lead Israel away from God. And eventually the Assyrian army comes in and captures them. They are exiled. And as the people are in exile, and as the people are wondering if God has abandoned them, as people are wondering what happens here, because God told David that one would sit on his throne forever, one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever, they begin to look at 2 Samuel 7 as a point of prophecy, as a point of hope. There is one who is going to come. There is going to be a Messiah. There is going to be a son of David. One day God will establish one of David's descendants to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and thus set us free from our oppression. Now who is David's father? Jesse. And so when Isaiah says, I see a stump, and out of that stump comes, or that stump itself is a stump of Jesse, what are we talking about? We're talking about a son of David. And now we fully enter into messianic prophecy. And you can see this also in chapter 2 of verse, uh, or chapter 11 of verse, in cha- verse 2 of chapter 11. Isaiah says, I see the Spirit of God resting on him. And Messiah literally means the anointed one. And the one who is anointed by God is the one on whom the Spirit of God rests. The one in whom, on who is, is drenched in the Spirit of God. And so from that point on, Isaiah begins to flesh out, what does this Messiah look like? What is this Messiah going to do? 
And the first thing that we see that the Messiah is going to do is that the Messiah is going to restore humanity. So look at the rest of verse 2. If you've got your Bible still open, follow along with me. If not, just listen here. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What we have to recognize is that these are not just a list of random characteristics describing the Messiah. Like, Isaiah isn't saying here, hey, the Messiah, you're going to want to hang out with him. He's a really cool guy, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, the Messiah, he's going to be super smart. Rather, Isaiah is listing out all of the traits that Israel's kings were supposed to embody, but did not. David, Solomon, Josiah, they got close to embodying. They got close to being these things, but they didn't fully embody them. And all the other kings were far from coming close to even embodying. Nobody perfectly embodied these traits. But Isaiah is saying the Messiah who comes will be the true king of Israel, the one who embodies all of this perfect. He will be the perfect king. And not only will he be the perfect king, but he will be in deep intimate communion with God such that all he does will be what God does. He will rule like God. Why? Because the Spirit of God rests so heavily upon him. Now, this, Messiah, or this prophecy is very clearly about the Messiah, but here's what I can say, or here's why I can say that through the Messiah, God is going to restore all of humanity. And it's simply this. You and I were created for deep, intimate relationship or communion with God. And with the knowledge of hindsight, we know that the one on whom the Spirit of God rested, Jesus, then sent that same Spirit to rest on his followers, you and me. Now, it doesn't mean that we are messiahs. Don't, mix, don't, don't hear me saying that, because that is not what I am saying at all. But rather, I'm saying that spirit that rests on the Messiah is then given to us so that we might be in deep, intimate communion with God. And as the Spirit of God rests on us, as we grow in understanding of God's grace and God's mercy and what God is calling us to and what God is doing and how God is shaping us and we are led by that spirit that rests on us, we now become restored in our humanity. We become more fully human. And it's here that we begin to delight in the fear of the Lord, which is such a strange phrase when you think about it. Delight in the fear of the Lord. But delight is actually a word that I think translators insert in there because the literal translation is so difficult. Literally, the Hebrew is a verbal noun, which I don't even know what that means because grammar is my enemy. But it's a verbal noun that means something like his breathing. So one translator translated this verse, right? Uh, the, the, he will delight in the fear of the Lord as it's his very breath in the fear of the Lord. That, like all of a sudden, that starts to ring something in me that's true. That the one on whom the Spirit of God dwells is the one whose very breath is in the fear of the Lord. 
I take it to mean something like, when the Spirit of God begins to rest on us fully, we recognize every breath as a gift. We see every moment as a mercy. Every time we open our eyes in the morning, we recognize that it is undeserved. And when you begin to see every moment of your day through those lens as as a gift, your joy increases, your delight expands. When delight then grows, gratitude overflows. And when gratitude overflows, something about how we approach our day, something about how we approach others, something about how we approach even God himself shifts. We we truly are transformed. Our, Our understanding of who we are changes understanding of God. Well, we want to draw near to the one who raises that gratitude up out of us. We want to draw near to the one who's causing delight to, 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 to flow through our veins. We are transformed. We are changed. We delight. And when you are living from a place of gratitude and delight... I think we get a little bit closer to how we were made to be. And I think that's what God intended for us in the garden. That we as humans would delight in God, in the world that God created, in the wonder, in the beauty, in the diversity of it. That we would be that we would have gratitude for all that has been given, for the very gift of life that God created in the first place. Our hearts would overflow with gratitude. Like, to live in that place is to get closer to what God intended and thus to have our humanity restored. So that's the first thing I think the Messiah does. I think that's what Isaiah points to, that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, humanity will be restored. Second, when the Messiah comes, societies will be restored. Look at the second half of verse 3. The Messiah will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the slash around his waist. This is, especially that second half of verse 3, is fascinating to me, particularly because it is so counter to our understanding. Notice what it says about the Messiah and how the Messiah will judge. The Messiah will judge not by what he sees. The Messiah will judge not (laughs) by what he hears. Wait, what? Isn't that exactly how we want people to judge? We want them to judge by what they see. We want them to call balls and strikes. We want their eyes to be opened. We want them to be listening clearly and okay, based on what you've heard, based on what you see, what is, the obje- what is your judgment? Facts, not feelings. We want you to use your senses to determine right from wrong. And Isaiah steps in and goes, no, the Messiah is not going to judge by what he hears. The Messiah is not even going to judge by what he sees. Rather, look at this, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice 
Not by what he hears, not by what he sees, but with righteousness. Okay. Well, how then, how then are you going to judge with righteousness if you ignore what you hear and what you see? Right? Don't you have to hear some things and see some things? Like, I need to hear, like Solomon, with the two women who come to him and say, like, that baby's mine. Right? And they're arguing over the baby because they both had a child. Remember the one rolled over on her baby during the night and the baby died. She then took the baby of the other mother and said, this is my baby, and they fought over it. They take it to Solomon. Solomon hears their case, and that's the famous line of, we'll just cut the baby in two, and the true mother says, no, 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 let the baby live, right? That's the story. And he judges wisely based on what he heard, based on what he sees. How do you make a right decision if you're ignoring what you hear and what you see? Well, I think we have to be honest about some things. Number one, uh, you can show people the exact same thing and they will come to two different conclusions. Right? Show people a news article, show people a news clip right now, have them watch it and listen to it and watch them come to very, two very different conclusions about what it means, about what should happen, all of that. Right? What we have to acknowledge is that human beings don't typically make decisions based on what they hear or what they see. They make decisions about what they already believe. And, and, and then that leads us to the second thing where we have to acknowledge that what people hear and what they see doesn't change what they believe. There's been multitudes of studies that, say, that show this. Show people facts, have them read them, have them watch a, have a video clip or whatever like that, and then see if those facts changed their opinions. What did they see? What did they hear? Did that change their opinion? And most of the time, it does not. It's like large percentage of the time. You can, if you were a betting man or woman, you would bet on their minds not changing. What we hear, what we see doesn't change our minds. Rather, we look at those things and then fit them into our already preconceived beliefs. So what changes people's minds? How do we move towards judging rightly? Time and time again, what changes people's minds is relationship. Relationships change people's minds. I used to think this about this people group or this person, and then I got to know them. Right? How many of us have seen with our eyes Yep, I got that right. Seen with our eyes and heard with our ears somebody talking, somebody doing something, and we made a judgment about that person only to later come into relationship with that person and had our preconceived ideas blown apart. Right? That's how it works. And if we understand righteousness in a biblical sense, righteousness in the biblical sense is all about being in right relationship. And so what Isaiah says is the Messiah will not judge based on what he hears and the Messiah will not judge based on what he sees. Rather, the Messiah will, be judge, will make judgments based on righteousness, based on right relationships. If we look at the life of Jesus, because, because the Isaiah prophecy goes on, righteousness for the poor, right? Justice for the needy. If we look at Jesus, who we believe to be the Messiah, who we declare and proclaim as the Messiah, 
At the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he walks into the synagogue, synagogue, grabs the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, and begins to read. And what does he read? I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. From the very beginning of his relationship, or from his ministry, Jesus began to enter into a relationship with the poor, both as one, right, growing up as a poor carpenter's son, and then as a Messiah to the poor, and he ministers to the poor, he dines with the poor, he becomes a poor who relies on the gratitude of others, who has no bed to call, or a home to call his own. He fully identifies from the poor, and from that place, judges rightly. And because of his relationship to the poor, he begins to transform society. He speaks to the rich and to the powerful in ways that threaten them. He gets on them just like the prophets of old for abusing the poor, for thinking they're better than the poor, for looking down on them. And he begins to bring them justice and restore their humanity. And so in this way, the Messiah restores society. He begins to put people in right relationships with one another. He displays for us what it means to be in right relationship with those who are like us and those who are different than us. He displays righteousness, justice, and faithfulness on a social level. And then third, the Messiah restores the cosmos. So the Messiah restores humanity, the Messiah restores society, and then the Messiah restores the cosmos. Look at verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my mountain, for the earth will be filled with the, Lord, with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let's work backwards here. How much of the sea is covered by water? All of it. Good. You're paying attention. All of the sea is covered by water. All right? Which is how much the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. At some point in the future, the earth will be as filled with the knowledge of God as the seas are with water. And when that happens, the whole earth will begin to live in peace. Violence will cease. The young child will play without fear with the viper. That young child will run through their neighborhood without fear of a car careening around the corner. The infant will roll around on the ground and will not fear the cobra or bacterias or viruses. The lion will become a vegetarian. The cow will share a trough with a bear. Children will be seen as leaders. And the lamb will lie down next to the wolf. 
And simply to put, what we're talking about here is what is at odds with each other, what experiences enmity will now experience peace. What's wrong in the world will be put right. What causes fear will be abolished. What distresses us will be vanquished. What concerns us will disappear. Because the Messiah has come, and the Messiah, when he comes, will bring peace to our human hearts, will bring peace to our society, and will bring peace to the entire cosmos. This is what's coming. This is our hope. Our Advent hope is that the one who brings peace will come. That where we see desolation, where we see stumps, a shoot will come up. And it will be a sign of restoration. And as always, we acknowledge that it's not here yet. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push the edge here a little bit, and I'll say in some ways, if we're being completely honest with ourselves, if we're being honest, maybe it's just me, if I'm being honest, in my most honest, in my most frustrated moments, sometimes it feels as if Jesus failed. Right? Because if he's the one on whom the Spirit of God rested, if he's the one who had right relationships with all people and showed us how we ought to interact with one another, if he was the one that is supposed to come and beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, like I gotta I, I got be honest and say, like, that's not here yet. Violence has not ceased, and lions still rip apart lambs. It feels like it failed. And, and that's why I have to remember how prophecies work. See, what's fascinating is if you read Isaiah 10.33, you read right into 10.33, right into 10.34, and then you read right into 11.1, right? Just read right through. You get this picture that God comes through and he lops down the trees and all you have left are the stumps and then as soon as those stumps, I mean the smoke hasn't even cleared the field yet, right? The stumps have just been shorn down. The sap is still creeping up through the stumps and then, boom, shoot comes up. It's right there. One minute stumps, one minute shoot. There aren't any time markers. And there's this thing in us that wants to say that that automatically happens next. This happens, then this happens. And they're almost simultaneously, or they're at least continuous. This, then this. But the truth is, because there's no time markers, it could be one minute stumps, next minute shoot. But it could also be one minute stump, a hundred years shoot. Could also be one minute stump, a thousand. 5,000 years shoot. We don't know. And so our hope is simply that it's coming. But here's why I trust Isaiah's vision. 
And here's why, despite the fact that I can get in those moments where, I'm, where it's just dark and I'm like, it failed. Here's what, here's what can pull me out of that. Nearly every Old Testament prophetic book sees events that are both near in history and far in history. And they see the near history events against the backdrop of the far history, right? So they see the thing that's near. A nation will come and conquer us. And they see that against the backdrop of there will be coming a day in which violence is no more, where swords are beaten into plowshares, right? And because they see these two things at the same time and they see both of them from some distance, they get flattened out. That's what we've got here. These two things, they're seen and they're flattened out. The way Isaiah writes is there's no time. Assyrian or the Davidic dynasty, whichever one you want to say, they're cut down, all you got is stumps, and then the next minute we've got a shoot coming up out of that stump. But we know that that shoot takes a few hundred years to show up. And so one way to think about the, how, how Old Testament prophecy works is to think about a mountain range. So if you're thinking about a mountain range out in the distance, if you ever have driven to Colorado, Right? You're driving across I-80, and it is flat as flat can be. It is, it is just boring. But then, just outside of Denver, you begin to see the mountains out in the distance. They're actually not the mountains. They're just the foot, range, foot ranges, but they look like mountains, right? And you see them out there, and you can't make out, like, you see one peak, and then you see another peak, and you see another peak, and it's just flat, right? There's, there's no distinguishing the distance between the two peaks. All you can see, it looks like they're right there. Like if I walk up to this peak and I get on top, then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to get to that peak there. But when you get up to the mountains and you climb up that first peak, you're like, oh, no, no, actually it's a few miles to that peak back there. And then when you get to that one, you're like, oh, that one is like, there's no way I could even get that in a day's drive. Right? This is a helpful image for how we think about Old Testament prophecies. That the prophets see everything from a distance and they see it and it's just, it's all flat. And as we get closer to the events, we see that they spread out. There's dimension that's added and we say, oh no, we got to this one. The nations did come, that nation did come and conquer us. But the shoot doesn't come up right here. The shoot's way out there in the distance. Isaiah looks and he sees it all. And what he sees is that one day God's going to cut down all those who oppress, all those things that destroy. That the desolation and the stumps in our lives are going to be there and God will step right into the midst of that and God will cause a shoot to grow. And we already know that that's started. Jesus has come. This is the already. What Isaiah has told is, is here, and we're standing on one mountain, and we're looking out to the next one. It started. Yeah, it started. God's calling the world into his future and we're standing on a mountain going we've gotten some of the way in but we're not yet there and we look a little bit into the future and we remember it's coming the messiah will return peace will be known 
The wolf will bed down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat. Swords will be beat into plowshares. This is the vision. This is our hope of Advent. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that into this world you've stepped. We give you thanks that into a field of nothing but stumps you came. We give you thanks that you are our rescuer, that you are the one who will restore, that you are the one who will make all things new. And Lord, we wait for that in our lives. We wait with expectancy for your newness to come into our individual lives, to birth something new in us, to change that thing that we've been waiting for, longing for, hoping for. To bring reconciliation to a relationship, to bring hope to a situation, to bring change to a habit or a way of being that causes us and others pain. We wait for your newness, expecting it to come. And we wait for your newness to come to our society, for righteousness and justice to prevail, for leaders who are good and right be established and ultimately for Christ to be revealed as the one who sits on the throne. We wait for your newness to come into the cosmos, to the entire universe. So one day all of creation, all that is in heaven or on earth, in the seas or in the earth below, will proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we wait for. Even so we pray. Come, Lord Jesus.